Well, good morning, North Boulevard. It is a different kind of a day, but it is a special day at North Boulevard Church of Christ for today. We get to meet our 2020 babies. As soon as I'm done preaching, we're going to be introduced to the little blessings that God gave us in 2020. I got one of those blessings. So I'm a dad of a 2020 baby, which means I'm asking all the same questions that you're asking about these babies. Like one, does, does Marin think that God made people who look like this or does she know that this right here is just a mask? That's my first question because what she was born into a pandemic is a lot of people wearing masks and I'm afraid that she thinks this is how we actually look. The second question I'm asking is, do I need to start saving now or do I have a few years? Do I need to start saving now for counseling? How messed up is it going to really be being born and raised in a pandemic? I know that you know God is going to take care of our babies and he has given us not just one blessing, not just two blessings, but about, a, about 20 blessings that have come out of this struggle in these little babies. So as we get started, I do want to introduce the idea today. We're going to be talking a lot about parenting and I want to start like David Young did last week with a letter. This letter that I'm going to start with is written by a guy by the name of Jim Elliott as, at 22 years of age to his parents. Here's what Jim Elliott writes. Now, Jim Elliott has come to the decision to go to the mission field and to serve an unreached tribe in Ecuador. So he writes to his parents saying this, I do not wonder that you were saddened at the word of my going to South America. This is nothing else than what the Lord Jesus warned us of when he told the disciples they must become so, I love this line, infatuated with the kingdom and following him that all other allegiances must become as though they were not. In fact, those loves which we regard as closest, he told us, must become his hate in comparison with our desire to uphold his cause. Now listen, he says, grieve not, mom and dad. Grieve not, then, if your sons seem to desert you. But rejoice, rather, seeing the will of God done gladly. Remember how the psalmist described children. He said that they were as a heritage from the Lord and that every man should be happy who had his quiver full of them. And what is a quiver full of but arrows? And what are arrows for but to shoot? So, with the strong arms of prayer, draw the bowstrings back and let the arrows fly, all of them straight at the enemy's hosts. What a letter. It's a powerful letter that if in plain English, in case there was something that might have been confusing, in plain English he says, Mom and Dad, I love you, but I love Jesus even more than you. And what I want you to do most right now, Mom and Dad, is send me like an arrow into the heart of the enemy. My question is, what if anything, can we do to raise such spiritual champions? If there is anything that we can do, would you do it? And what, if anything, can we do to raise spiritual champions? You don't have to raise a Jim Elliot. Uh, Jim Elliot is Jim Elliot, and your son is your son. Your daughter is your daughter. But if there's something we could do, what would you do? And I, I just want to say a spiritual champion looks something like this. A spiritual champion will stick to the values of Christ in a secular culture. A spiritual champion swims upstream and takes the unpopular position. A spiritual champion holds fast to the faith when others walk away. 
They love God and deny self. They serve when others hate. They give when others take. And they love the church even at her worst. They would never abandon the church even at her worst. So my question is, what can we do to contribute to the raising of spiritual champions, especially when it comes to that of the next generation? Even, yes, our 2020 babies. So first, let's take an assessment of where we are right now. And in his book, The Great Evangelical Recession, John Dickerson in 2013 compiled data to show what we're doing and really what the state of the church is concerning young people right now. It's grim data. It isn't pleasant. Many of you have heard this now for uh, decades, but I'm just going to go ahead and share it anyway. Josh McDowell's research shows that 69% of evangelical teens are leaving the church after high school. Lifeway research shows that 70% of Christian millennials are not attending church any longer after the age of 23. And Barna estimates that four out of five, four out of five young evangelicals will disengage from church by the age of 29. So I hate this data. I don't even like putting it in front of you because it's a kind of an emotional thing to read. It can be discouraging, a little bit even disheartening. But the data does point to a conclusion. It's not just floating data. And it points to this, the same thing that the scriptures have been teaching us for years, for thousands of years. That somewhere along the way our focus on programs, techniques, dollars, and ministry sizes, perhaps even powerful worship, distracted us from the basics basics. None of these things that we listed are bad. Ministry sizes, great. Programs are fantastic. As a dad myself, I just want to go ahead right now and say thank you to North Boulevard for everything that you do and everything that you do offer to support parents and grandparents and spiritual parents in raising up our children. But we must not abandon the basics. So to put it plainly, we can no longer rely on institutions to do what relationships alone can do. That's the point. And that's where the data drives. Or to even be more specific, because the chapter that we're going to deal with today talks about a specific relationship. We can no longer rely on programs to do what parents alone can do. That's where this data drives. But again, it's also where the scripture has been leading us all along. Tony Evans famously says it like this. The single greatest reason... Uh, why our young people are walking away, why we're losing our young people today is that the home is no longer the place where faith is transferred. Parents, he says, the primary purpose of the home is the evangelization and discipleship of your children. You cannot outsource this vital component in the rearing of your children. Martin Luther King Jr. says, the group consisting of mother, father, and child is the main educational agency of mankind. That's how God created it. And then Charles Spurgeon, who I'm actually going to quote twice in today's sermon, says, Let no Christian parents fall into the delusion that Sunday school is intended to ease them of their personal duties. First, and natural, most natural condition of things is for Christian parents to train up their own children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. These guys didn't come up with that. There is a foundation laid in Scripture for such a principle. And I just want to go ahead and say off the bat, If you are parents and you have children in your home, there are five principles in the text we're going to learn that directly apply to you that you can begin uh, implementing right now in your home to raise spiritual champions. If you're an older family, maybe you have older kids. You're still mom and dad. And you can, uh, even if you've never done it before, you can be living out these biblical principles to disciple your kids, even if they're grown. If you have grandkids, oh, how sweet it is when Mimi and Jeepaw come beside me as a dad 
to raise up my children in the Lord. And they add their own sweet touches as a grandparent to the next generation. And then I'll even say this. You remember that Paul called Timothy his son. They're not related. He's not in his nuclear family, is in no way biological, not even an adopted child, but rather a spiritual child. And so you can begin to raise up disciples of Jesus in a parental sense, even if that's a spiritual parenting. So this applies to all of us who have a vested interest in raising up spiritual champions. We're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1. And I've prayed specifically that this one thing would happen, that you would receive Deuteronomy 6 with urgency to raise up the next generation, but not with anxiety. Urgency, but not anxiety. That's the posture right now as we enter verse 1 of Deuteronomy 6. And listen, as Moses sets the tone for us, raising up spiritual champions. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. The decrees and laws that he's speaking of, the Ten Commandments that he just gave in in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 2. So that you... Your children and their children, notice his generational interest. You, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you. And so you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. Let's capture the first thing that Moses is doing because it's of utmost importance. He does this, uh, he's done this prior in Deuteronomy. He'll do it again in Deuteronomy. It's found all throughout Scripture. And this is what he's doing. He's establishing that before you could do anything, before you even existed, before you could have responded to God at all, God loved you first. What he says to Israel is that before this generation was even born, God has made a promise to you to give you a good land. He wishes you well. The promise is for a land flowing with milk and honey. It's not just any land, but he has rich blessings for your life. And here's the first principle if you're raising up the next generation, and that is, number one, lead with the love of God. Even in Deuteronomy chapter 5, when he gives the Ten Commandments, God himself says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery. Then he gives the Ten Commands. This is the tone that God sets. I loved you before you could do anything. I loved you first. I went first. So number one, lead with the love of God. If you have children in your home, how often are you telling them that God loves them? In what ways are you telling them? If you have grandchildren, how often are you telling them? If you're discipling somebody, how often are you telling them God loves them? We have even more than Moses had. We now have Jesus on the cross who, while we were yet sinners— died for us. How, how clearly and how often are you communicating that God loves you for? The foundation of life and truth and discipleship is the love of God. It's not even your love for God. The first brick laid is that God loves you. And then we respond to the love of God. John, the apostle of Jesus, says it like this. We love because he first loved us. God went first. Uh, Susan and Anna Warner, you might know their names. Uh, They're novelists. They wrote all kinds of material, actually, in the 1800s. And in 1860, the two sisters worked together to write a a, a novel, a two-part novel, called Say and Seal. In the story, uh, Susan has crafted this wonderful scene. It's a touching scene where Johnny, a little child, is sick, and he's receiving tender care from Mr. Linden, a Bible school teacher. 
And as Mr. Linden is with Johnny, he's lifted up his uh, weak body. He's helping him walk around this room. And Johnny kind of leans on Mr. Linden and he says one word very quietly. He says, sing. So Susan paused the novel and she goes over to her sister Anna and she says, Anna, what should he sing? Could you sit and write down some words for Mr. Linden to give to Johnny? So when Anna sat down to put pen to paper, the one question she had in her mind is, what does a child need most? What would really bring the child comfort? And this is what she wrote, and you'll recognize it. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. This song was put, this poem was put to lyrics, or put to music, excuse me, by William Bradbury, and it spread across the world, becoming, for many people, the first song learned in unreached areas as the gospel spreads across the nations. Jesus loves me. How pure. How simple and yet how foundational that our children would know that God loves them before anything else. Uh, There's a father at North Boulevard. I called him just this week because I had heard once before that he every day reassured his children of the love of God. Every day he wanted to lead with that. So I called him this week and I I asked permission to share this story because I wasn't sure if Bob's name was going to slip out of my mouth. And so I wanted to have permission to share. And Bob said, well, you can share. I hope it's a blessing to somebody else because every day he developed the practice of going into his children's room, putting his hand on his son's back and reciting a blessing out of numbers. The blessing reads, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be, be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And he put his hand on his daughter's back and he'd recite that blessing. Often he'd use other blessings as well, but this was a blessing that he would return to time and time again so that by the time his kids were grown, thousands of times, dad would have offered this blessing. When he was away, he'd call and recite the blessing. He would text his children as they grew up and send them the blessing every day. And on his daughter's wedding, he stands up to do the dad speech And over his daughter and her new husband, he blesses them. So that no matter what, at least one time every day, his kids would know God means well for me. God has plans for me. He has a place. He has a purpose for me. And if you don't know how to communicate the love of God to your children, then I want to encourage you to work in these three categories. This is the three categories that Moses works in, and we should be communicating regularly. God has plans for you. God has a place for you. He's actually preparing a place for you right now while I preach. And God has a purpose for you that you might bless others and be a blessing to the whole world. Let's move on. Number one, though, lead with the love of God. As we go into the next verse in verse four, we're going to discover the second principle. This is a crucial text. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. And that brings us to the second principle for raising up spiritual champions. Here we have begun the Shema. It's entitled the Shema after the Hebrew word for hear or listen, which is how verse 4 begins. Shema Israel. It's recited in morning and in evening prayer by devout Jews. This is a central text to Judaism. It is actually, if you will, the primary text because it includes the great confession of faith and it includes how we are to respond to God. That's why it's used daily. It's about identity, who God is, how we respond to him, but it's also about the heart. 
the heart. So someone would say, I think the New Testament is about the heart and the Old Testament is about duty or it's about religious responsibility. That's not true. From the very beginning, God has been interested in one thing when it comes to mankind, and that's your heart, the inner man. That you would first give yourself over to him before we even think about any religious activities, that he would have your heart. So I just want to say, based on the principle here from verses 4 through 6, that God wants you to develop wholehearted, contagious love for the Lord. Before even verse I should say, before even verse 7, where Moses says, impress this upon your children or teach this to your children. The emphasis here is that you first would develop wholehearted, contagious love for the Lord. And even to, to use the word contagious is a bit redundant. Because the things that you love with your whole heart, that is contagious. And uh, I couldn't talk about that without talking about this man, who we've all at least seen on the TV screen with his contagious love for animals, Steve Irwin, or the crocodile hunter, as you might have come to know him. He loved all kinds of animals, specifically endangered animals, that he would go and fight for them. And uh, I've read that he had a thousand acres that he would use for conservation to bring these endangered animals that he might help them uh, come off the, the track of being endangered. Here he is with his passionate love for animals. I also say, too, he raised his kids around these animals. So here's Robert Irwin, who gets this special opportunity to kind of sit on the back of a koala as a baby. Because Steve's passion was so contagious. It spilled over into everything that he did. Here's Robert and Bendy. I, I would, my wife would not approve of me taking a picture like this with my kids. But Steve loved animals so much his children were around. Even the ones that creepy crawly animals that I wouldn't touch. His children came to love as well. So it's not just Steve who puts the two thumbs up, who shares all the passion about animals. His son, Robert, picked up on that as well. And here you see Robert has even got his mannerisms, his smile. He's wearing right here a shirt that says Australia Zoo because Robert loves them too. And Robert has dedicated his life to the love of animals. Steve is not the only one who can cuddle a koala. Robert can cuddle a koala just as well. And Steve is not the only one who's not afraid of a snake bite, even kind of finding some joy in it. Robert will take one on the nose and be just fine. Steve and Robert share this love because Robert watched his dad with those eyes that only children have. And that is, mom, dad, show me what's important in life. Share your passions with me. Share your energy. So that's why you see pictures like this where it's not just Steve who will hold an animal like this. But his son Robert will too. And Robert has the benefit of social media where he posts selfies with turtles. And that's kind of a popular thing to do. If you haven't posted a selfie with a turtle in a while, you might consider it. And then Bendy, not to be outdone, uh, Steve's daughter, stars with Robert on a show. And yeah, you've probably seen this. It's called Crikey. It's the Irwins. This is what a contagious, wholehearted love will do. Because kids come into our home asking a question. They ask, Mom, Dad, what is important in life? What's most important? And they're looking to you to help them decide. So if you will go first and develop a wholehearted, contagious love for the Lord, that would be beneficial to your children. Charles Spurgeon actually says it like this. I told you I was going to quote him. He says, train up a child in the way he should go, but be sure to go that way yourself. Be sure to go that way yourself. So how do you do that? Well, the instructions in the greatest commandment, as Jesus refers to this, this is the greatest commandment, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. The heart is the inner man. It's your thoughts, it's your affections, it's your emotions, it's your will. So you know at some point in your life what it's like to have placed your heart on someone or something. I'm going to um, 
regret doing this, but I have a five-year-old who I think too early has placed his heart on this little girl at his homeschool co-op. So he came home from a classical conversations and he said, Dad, I kept my eye on a new girl all day today. And I said, you did? He said, I didn't even listen to what mama was saying. I just kept my eye on this girl. And I said, uh, well, buddy, what's her name? He says, I don't have one second of an idea. But in my mind, she's beautiful. So you know what it's like to put your heart into something or someone. And what the great command says is, uh, before anything, your heart is to be on God himself. That's where your thoughts are. It's what your affections are. It's what you're driven towards. And that would affect your soul. The soul, or Hebrew for nefesh, is the essence of your life. It's actually your, your breath itself. It's what gives you life. And ultimately, if you love the Lord with all your soul, it will be the defining factor of your life. When someone reflects back on who you were as a person, they'll say, as a life, the, the whole being was dedicated to God. And then your strength. And to love the Lord your God with all your strength is a very fascinating word. It's the word that, that God actually uses when he describes creation. He says, it was very good. This is the word for strength, very. Love the Lord your God with all your very. And what that means is uh, the Septuagint actually translated it power. It's with your physical attempts. It's with your wealth, your resources, your influence, your talents. It's everything that you bring to the table. You love the Lord your God with all of that. And your kids watch mom and dad love God with everything that they have. Our money goes to the love of the Lord. Our talents, our time, our resources, my physical energy to the love of the Lord. We don't do that to put on a show, but because it's the most authentic version of the faith. Deuteronomy 6 now in verse 7, and let's grab the third principle for raising up spiritual champions. Verse 7, impress them on your children. Talk about them, the commands, when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on the foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Then he says, make sure you do that as well in times of prosperity. It's most important in times of prosperity. When the Lord your God brings you into a land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So what Moses is teaching is all about how to impress the commands of God on your children. And he's very, very straightforward and practical in Deuteronomy 6 because it's important. And we do need practical steps for being able to accomplish this task. To summarize his practical steps, I would say the third principle of raising up a spiritual champion is this. Weave the teachings of God into ordinary activities of life. That's what he's communicating. It's all the time, it's everywhere, it's in the day-to-day, -day. it's in the coming and going, it's in the washing of dishes, it's in the driving to school, it's in the waking up in the morning, it's in shopping in the grocery store, it's in watching a show together. It's all that we do, even the ordinary stuff of life. There's a lot that could be said about that, but there's one thing I first need to emphasize, and that is, what is it that Moses is saying to weave? What is it he's saying impress upon your children? The teachings of God. The teachings of God. I'll say it again. The teachings of God. This is unapologetic, scripture-based indoctrination. This is not free-form spiritual exploration. And there is a huge difference. Uh, free-form spiritual exploration 
is basically giving your family, giving your children a license to decide for themselves what's good and right and beautiful and true. And when we fall into that, oftentimes we rely on cultural pressures to determine what we're about. Often, oftentimes it really just boils down to peer pressure. It boils down to following our hearts and our intuitions, which are corrupted anyway. Freeform spiritual exploration is damaging and dangerous because you're withholding truth from your child. You're not loving them. You're withholding love from them because to love your child well is to give them the truth. And the truth is the scriptures. The truth is the teachings of God. So Moses is very unapologetic here. He says, impress upon your children the commands of God. May they know these words. They sing these words. They obey these words. They see mom and dad are dedicated to these words. Anything outside of them is not true. Outside of these things, your children will find what they think is right and true and beautiful until they discover that that is actually going to destroy them. It won't bring them life or blessings. But these words bring life and blessings. These words are true. So as, your, as a parent, your primary responsibility is to impress these things upon your children, not to leave them floating, not to leave them wondering. How do you do that? Well, he says a lot of practical advice like, uh, when you sit at home, you're supposed to talk about them. When you walk along the road, you're supposed to talk about them. When you lie down and when you wake up, let's just, just focus here. So sit at home is the private place. And that's why, really, we can't trust programs or systems or institutions to do the work of a parent because you have access to the private space, to the secret space, the intimate place. Like, I'm a minister. I don't tuck your kids in bed at night. <laughs> you do that. I don't put them in the van and drive down the road. Uh, you do that. And that's why the parent has the onus here because the most genuine version of the faith is in the private space and in the public space. It's in the evenings and it's in the mornings. So the child knows this is not religious activity that we do. This is who we are. We are the people of God. As you tie them as symbols on your hands or you tie them on your foreheads, his point there is to dedicate what you do with your body to the Lord, what you think with your mind to the Lord, and keep Scripture in strategic places to help you remember the commands of God. If you take that literally, uh, Jews began to do so in about the 4th century and tied phylacteries, little boxes with the Scriptures on their arms, boxes with Scriptures on your foreheads. It's fine. Jesus doesn't even condemn that. What Jesus condemns, though, is tying boxes on your arms and on your hands, on your head, and your heart being far from God. That's what Jesus condemns. So above anything else, before we even think about literal practices here, make sure that your heart is given over to the Lord and that your, your Scripture use is not just decorating your home with Scripture— but dedicating your home to Scripture, that you would live it out, that we apply it, that we're serious about it. That's the point of what this text is all about. And if you think, well, I'm going to drive my kids away if I preach at them all the time, you are so right. <laughs> that would not be a great plan. So a great example to follow here is Jesus himself. Duh. The example of Jesus as he walks along the road with his children, his spiritual children, his disciples, he points out something that they can see, like a mustard bush a gardener, a fisherman. And he takes what they can see and he shows them what they can't see. And he teaches them about God by pointing out, that, like the mustard bush, it's big in this garden, but it came from a small seed because God knows how to start with small beginnings. Or the, the gardener has some areas that grow uh, the, the crop, but other areas that don't. And in that way, we know that people will accept the word of God and, and then they won't. You get to be the master teacher for your kids, showing them what they can't see by pointing it out throughout the day. Using examples, stories, illustrations. Let's move on to verse 13. 
Fear the Lord your God. Serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods. Do not follow other gods like the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not test the Lord your God as you did at Massa. Be sure to keep the commandments of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you and you may go in the land, take over this good land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers, thrusting out all your enemies before you as the Lord said. Now that is a potent text and there's some really powerful stuff in that text. First of all, we need to note what I think is obvious, but I'll say it anyway. That idea of picking up a sword and thrusting out idolaters is a local and temporary statute. But there is in this verse, in these, this passage, an eternal and timeless principle, a universal principle, and I hope you caught it. And that is that God is a jealous God, and sin and idolatry is equivalent to spiritual adultery. It's equivalent to cheating on God. That is timeless. That is universal. We don't pick up the sword, but we do fight sin, because sin and idolatry is spiritual adultery against the one who loved us first and the one that we love with our whole hearts. You cannot convince me that you love the Lord your God with all your heart if your heart is also not turned against sin. The two are one and the same because God is made jealous by sin. So that brings us to the fourth principle for raising up spiritual champions, and that is we are to loathe sin and we're to teach our kids to loathe it too. Uh, so there's a lot of talk about us ensuring that we're known by what we stand for. So we speak in the positive, and we speak for what we're about, and that's right and good. But man, oh man, my four kids need to know what dad stands against. They need to hear me call sin, sin. They need to see me turn off the TV at times, change the radio station, uh, walk out of a movie theater when it's appropriate. Sin is sin. And when we pass the passion that we have uh, against sin onto our children, that's picked up too. And if we're soft with sin at home, I, I guarantee you they're going to be soft with sin in the world. So we have to call sin, sin. We stand against it. We stand against it because God's heart is on the line. We don't want to stir up the jealousy of God. We love our God. But there's a problem, and that is we don't really want to loathe sin. First of all, we want to raise children who are widely admired. And in an increasingly secular world, we've come to convince ourselves that they kind of actually need to be able to dance with sin and flirt with it and be good with it and understand it. Like they, they need to have good locker room talk because they're going to be in locker rooms, right? Or they need to see the movies or they need to hear the, the music and they need to know about those celebrities and they need to go to those events and they need to have that lifestyle because that's what the others are doing. That's kind of what their friendship group is going to be doing. That's what their culture is all about. And we don't want our children to be outsiders and we definitely don't want our children to be hated. We don't want them to be misunderstood. We'd much rather them be widely admired. But when we raise our children to be widely admired, we necessarily make compromises with sin. And those compromises with sin are dangerous. And they're damaging. So what we need to commit to is raising righteously abnormal children. By the way, I'm trying to do that. It's not easy to do. But if you'll try to do it, then maybe my children will have some righteously abnormal people to marry. And don't you need me to do that too? In the end, don't we need a community of righteously abnormal kids? Righteously abnormal teens? 
20-year-olds, 30-year-olds. So that could be shot like arrows into Blackman High School. Shot like arrows into Riverdale, into Siegel, into MTCS, into Rockvale, into MTSU and Motlow. Righteously abnormal, strange kids. I should say, in areas of the world, by the way, we're students of these areas of the world, like West Africa, for instance, where we're seeing disciple-making movements take off. Young people who are going to spread the gospel. Former Muslims who are taking off with the gospel. In those areas, we've noticed that they're using certain scripture lists to train up disciples, like discovering God and everything that you need to know about him in the scriptures, and discovering Jesus and the gospel. But they're also using this scripture list like third on their list, or fourth. And that is persecution. And how to prepare for persecution. I literally just stole this off of a website from disciple-making movements. And the, and the scripture list talks about how Jeremiah was put in prison as a prophet of God. How Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego faced the fiery furnace. Stephen was stoned. Peter was put in prison. Paul was stoned so that the, the babes in the faith begin to understand, oh, my culture might not like me at times. Maybe I'm going to be an outsider. And if it all goes really well, someday my son will sit alienated from his own community, grieving the sins of his school, uh, of his friends, of his world, loathing that sin. And maybe he too will be persecuted, stood up against. There is no greater threat to a secular culture than a devout Christian. There's no greater threat. And if we're raising spiritual champions, they're going to be a threat. We got to prepare them for persecution or we haven't prepared them for their future. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20, we get the last principle. Principle 5. And it goes like this. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulation, decrees, and laws our God has commanded you? Tell him. What are you supposed to tell him? It's a story. Notice the story. We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out. The he there is literally like your dad, your granddad, son. He brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the, the land that he promised on oath to our forefathers. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all his law before the Lord our God as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. So Moses is equipping mom and dad to tell the family faith story. It is so important. This is the fifth principle. Tell your family faith story. When these uh, men and these women said to their sons and their daughters, we were pulled out of Egypt. They're not talking about some abstract story. They're talking about your granddad, your great-granddad. They were slaves, and God did something for us. God showed up. So yeah, I want you to pass on to your kids the story of Exodus and the wanderings and the conquest of Israel. But it's also so important that you tell them about granddad. Tell them about great granddad. Tell them about you. And where did God show up in your story? Uh, 26 million people have taken genetic uh, ancestry tests. They've submitted results online. They're tracking their family ancestry and heritage to know who they are and where they came from. But your job is to tell the family faith story so that you might ground them in what God has done for your family. It's questions like this. Who taught you about God? 
When did you decide to confess Jesus as Lord and be baptized? Why were you compelled to do so and how has God blessed you? I don't do everything right as a parent. But on occasion, I'll tell the family face story to my kids and their eyes are as big as saucers when I do because it matters. So when I tell them, hey, granddad, your granddad was up late one night in Covington, Kentucky, walking the streets. When he came across this woman on her front porch who was mourning, a lot of others were walking those streets, but they were just looking for a good time. She was sitting there crying, and my dad, your granddad, started talking to this woman and realized that she had just lost a baby. The Holy Spirit touched them on the porch as they talked late at night and led them to begin talking about Jesus and where they could get real comfort. That led them to call a minister, and this man of God in the dead of night came out and told about the gospel, brought them to church. And my dad, your granddad, dedicated his life to Jesus. He went to David Lipscomb, studied biblical languages. He can read this stuff in Greek and Hebrew. Changed the whole course of his life. And then when he had me, his son, he taught me the commands of God, prayed for me, stayed up late with me when I had spiritual questions. And about this time, that's when my kids say, well, can we stay up late? I say, no, you can't stay up late. But he told me about God, taught me those commands so that when the Holy Spirit touched me and I ran down the aisle with tears in my eyes, it was your granddad, my dad, who baptized me into Jesus. This is the family faith story. It's where God entered our home. It's where he entered our family, where he called us. It's who we are. Everything changes when God enters the story, and your kids need to know that. I want to point out that this generation who heard Deuteronomy chapter 6 were unfaithful. They didn't even pass it on to their kids. Can you believe it? Judges chapter 2 tells us that the whole generation that was raised after them grew up and knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. They failed. And they were the ones who heard this from Moses' own lips. But you have the opportunity to do it differently. So I remind you of Jim Elliott where we started. And his dad, Fred, passed down to Jim what he had received from his grandfather, Harry. And what he said is this, life is only worth living if given completely over to God. Jim took it seriously and went to the mission field, ultimately even lost his life as he shared the gospel with this unreached tribe in Ecuador. I want to challenge you to live out these five principles for the sake of raising up spiritual champions because the world needs them. And the alternative is just a little bleak for us as a church. So I've told you that God has given us blessings in 2020. About 20 of them, if I'm right, these little babies that have been entrusted to our care. The parents get the onus to raise them up, but we as a church come beside and we reinforce everything that God wants for them, what he wants to teach them and how he wants to raise them up. So before I just talk on and on about these 2020 babies, I'm going to send the service over to Maddie Blankenship and Amy Sane, who represent our children's ministries, and they're going to introduce us to these 2020 babies.